Well, I want to talk uh, this time about the temptations of the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. And it seems to me that this is all talking about an internal temptation process within the Lord. Um, Jesus was tempted, Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, in all points like as we are, yet without sin. And we're not tempted by any uh, external guy coming up to us who fell off the 99th floor back in the Garden of Eden, but temptation is an internal process. Uh, James 1, uh, etc. clarifies that. And Matthew, I suggest, is who he... Uh, sorry, when Matthew talks about uh, the scribe that is instructed unto the kingdom of God, I wonder if he's talking really with his eye on himself. That's a bit of a, um, another topic really, but it seems to me that Matthew is writing from a, a scribal, sort of Jewish Orthodox kind of perspective and presenting the Gospel to those people. Now, in the rabbinic writings, it was quite common to set up a kind of dramatic fictional narrative of the type that we've got here in the record of the Wilderness Temptations. So I don't think you have to take it absolutely dead literally that all this literally happened. I think that this is a, a dramatic presentation of the temptation of, of, of Jesus um, as he was there 40 days in, in the wilderness. In fact, if you try to take the whole thing literally, it doesn't work. I mean, for example, he goes to a very high mountain and from the top of it he can see all the kingdoms of the world. Well, because the earth is a sphere, uh, you, you can't actually do that. And if you look in Luke, the record of the temptations in Luke is in a slightly different order. So I don't really think that the whole thing could have happened literally, um, that, that he was literally led through the streets of Jerusalem and he climbs up the, the, the temple uh, and gets onto the, onto the top of it. Um, and then he goes and, and climbs up into a, a very high mountain. I mean, Hermon, I guess, is the highest mountain in, in Israel. If all these temptations happened in, uh, at least twice, which would have to be so, because Luke puts them in a different order to what we have here in Matthew, I don't see it could have really happened within 40 days. Plus, the whole thing doesn't, uh, it can't fit in a sort of literal, uh, literal reading. Plus, the, temptation, the temptations returned to him. The devil departed for, from him for a season. Uh, it, we were told there in, in Luke as if the temptations came back. But at no other time does a person styled the devil appear and start testing and, and tempting Jesus in, in a literal kind of form. But the essence of these temptations read in a spiritual uh, psychological sense, they certainly did return, and they all actually return, uh, particularly at the crucifixion. So I think that this is all talking about us. It's presenting what was going on in the mind of Jesus in a sort of literal uh, way, in this uh, dramatic sort of dramatized narrative that, that we've got here. That, that's my suggestion. But for our purposes today, I want to try and draw some lessons for us from well, what the Lord Jesus experienced, knowing that he was tested and tempted in every way that we are. And in Matthew 4, verse 1, we're told that Jesus was led of the Spirit uh, to, be, uh, to, to be tested, to be tempted. And uh, the same phrase occurs in Romans 8, verse 14, and I think this is one of... Paul's very many allusions back to the Gospels, Romans 
chapter 8, verse 14, he says that we are those who are led by the Spirit of God and who are the sons of God. So the Son of God here is led by the Spirit. And, and the repetition of those ideas in Romans 8.14, I suggest, indicates that what happened to the Lord, in essence, also happens to us. And so that's why we can really learn by this, uh, this whole record here for, for ourselves. And I would suggest that the essence of the temptations were Jesus questioning whether he really was the Son of God. So he, the, the devil, which I suggest is his own internal temptations, uh, suggests to him that he can give him the kingdoms of the world and the, and the glory of them. That's Matthew 4 verse 8. And that's all framed very much in the language of Psalm 2, verses 7 and 8, in the Septuagint, where God proclaims his son to the world and invites his son, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations of the earth for your inheritance, and the end of the earth uh, for your possession. Greek words there are identical to those which are used by the, uh, the devil here. So Jesus wasn't only being tempted to misapply scripture, uh, which all the temptations have an element of that, just as we can be tempted to, to twist scripture to our own end. Um, but I think more to the point, he was trying to check out whether he really was, in fact, God's son. You know, if you are the son of God. That's the repeated temptation that we're reading here. So, I think then that the Lord was tempted to doubt whether he really was the Son of God. And of course he was so human that that's quite natural. I mean, when at 30 years old he stands up in the synagogue and uh, obliquely presents himself as Messiah and says, look, this day the scripture is, is fulfilled in your ears, they get furious. They say, no, nah, but th this is the carpenter's son. We know your brothers. We know your family. You're just a human guy. Jesus, so who do you think you are? Jesus was one of the most common names in first century Palestine. You're just one of us. And in passing, I find that just exquisitely beautiful, that the Son of God, who never sinned, he never committed sin, and he never omitted any act of righteousness all through his life until the age of 30. That was true. Um, he, despite doing all that, that, achieving that utter perfection, nobody ever really noticed that he was any different. Now, when you and I try to be a little bit more righteous than other people, not that we intend to, you know, do it in that irritating, uh, self-presenting kind of way, but when it's clear that our way of life uh, is somewhat more spiritual than, than theirs, be it in family life, be it in, uh, in the workplace or wherever, people don't like it. People really just uh, get nasty about it. They, they don't like it. They object to it. And yet Jesus was utterly perfect and nobody noticed. To such a point that when he stood up and said, uh, basically, I'm the son of God, they said, no, you're not. We know who you are. You're just a guy. You're one of us. We know you. We know your family. We know where you came from. Now, that also suggests that the whole... Uh, thing about his divine begettal and the angels coming and the wise men coming. People forgot that. Over 30 years they forgot that. Uh, that's typical of human beings. And an old thing with John the Baptist and Elizabeth, well, people would have sort of, yeah, vaguely remembered, uh, yeah, his mum got pregnant and yeah, like she reckoned it was from God or something like that. 
I would also argue, and I, you can read this up uh, in uh, Bible Lives and the, the section about Mary, it, it seems to me that Mary had a, a sort of a midlife crisis of, of faith. Um, I, I don't want to go into that now, but I, I think that she also started to uh, have her doubts about the whole thing that had happened. It must have all seemed like a weird dream like when she says and when they, they find him in the temple she scolds him and says your father and I were looking for you thinking that you dead that you were dead uh, we searched for you sorrowing sorrowing there is the word for uh, mourning really uh, at a funeral uh, your father and I were mourning for you we thought you were dead and Jesus says he turns it back against her and says well didn't you know that I was in my father's house he turns it back as if to say, no, look, Joseph isn't my real father. God is my father, and so I was in his house. Why didn't you perceive that? So that, and there's a whole load of other things. I mean, the way he calls her woman, uh, for example, and the way he almost rebukes her at the, the marriage in, in Cana. Um, I, 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 well, I don't want to go into details, but I, I suspect that she had some sort of crisis of, of faith. Uh, there's no evidence that in those 30 years she had any other divine revelation. And as the years went by and she had other children, it must have seemed that, well, I don't know what, I don't know what happened with that Jesus, my firstborn. But anyway, yeah, um, for sure Joseph was not his father, but there you are. And everyone else would have sort of said, yeah, yeah, she's a bit crazy. Like, yeah, she got pregnant. And okay, that's how it is. Um, play on, you know, how societies and villages sort of cover up and just eventually move on but leave these sort of nagging question marks hanging over people's head. Now that's how it would have been. And so he also would, of course, as he was so human, he would have at times wondered, well, am I really the son of God? Am I anything different? Now, we also have that temptation. Not that we are the divinely begotten son of God, but we are also God's children, and when you read of the language of the new birth uh, in John 3, when we are to be born again of water and of spirit, um, uh, and the references in First Peter and in James and in other places, in 2 Corinthians, uh, to the new birth, it's all framed in the language of the virgin birth of the Son of God, as if in a sense, what happened to us spiritually, in our spiritual birth, uh, is based upon his conception that we also have become the children of God of course not uh, in the physical literal sense that, that he was um, but in essence we also have that question then am I the son of God? really? if you are the son of God? if you are the child of God? whoever you are, Ludmilla Duncan, Cindy if you really as you think you are, one of the chosen family of God that is separate from this world and is going to live forever in his wonderful kingdom, is that really the case? And I think that it becomes a question to us because events that happen in your life and my life are pretty well the same as what happens in the life of the world. People get cancer. People die. People get sick. People become handicapped. People fall in love. People are successful in their business or they're not successful in their business they have an accident on the road they slip over and break a leg on the ice they whatever you know whatever it is those sort of events that make make up life your child gets sick 
um, your child finishes uh, college and becomes famous or whatever, good luck, bad luck as it, as it seems in a human perspective. The, the series of events that make up our lives in practice are the same events that really happen to everybody else. Now, the difference is, of course, that those events in our lives have a meaning which is not attached to those same events when they occur to unbelievers or those who are not in the family of God. But that is uh, a question of faith and interpretation and, and, uh, and faith to perceive that. But looking at it from one perspective, it can seem that our lives are actually no different to the lives of the guy next to us. We are not luckier, we are not more blessed, it seems to me, than the, the, the fellows next to us, in a, in a physical, literal, kind of materialistic kind of sense. I know some would say that we, we should be or we could be, but I, I, my observation is that we're not. I would look at it that um, those events simply have different meaning. If you are poor, or if you are wealthy, or if you succeed in your exams, or if you fail your exams, or whatever it might be, uh, if you're healthy, if you're sick, um, all that is under God's control, and it's all part of a bigger picture to bring you and me to the kingdom, in a sense that it may not be in the lives of unbelievers. So, this question, am I really anything different? Am I someone radically different to the bloke next to me? Is my family any different to the family that lives next door, in essence? Yeah, this is a nagging question which we may not verbalize, we may not um, come to perceive it, but it is so. He was tempted to worship the devil, and then he would receive all the kingdoms of the world. And yet all the kingdoms of the world belonged to him in prospect, there and then. But he, he was wondering, will I really receive all this kingdom? Why don't I just have it here and now, for 70 years and have a decent time and then quit? Is this really going to come? And of course that is our question, isn't it? That's our temptation. Shall I not just build up my business in this life? Shall I not just go for that relationship that seems to, to answer all my questions, uh, solve all my issues and doubts and problems and fears, and well, okay, so then we'll just get on with it for, for this life and it'll be cool, and then, well, okay, all good things come to an end and that's it. Didn't have a bad innings, but that's it, over and out. Or are we going to say, no, 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 no. The kingdom is mine. I don't have it yet, but I will have it. Now, the temptations, especially as Matthew seems to frame them, are, I think, relevant to the expectations that the Jews had about Messiah. For example, the Jews thought that Messiah would authenticate himself by creating manna. And so he's tempted here, turn stones into bread. Make the manna right now. I mean, you, you can prove that, not just from reading Jewish sources from the first century, but uh, you know, in John 6, um, they come to him and say, well, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, so what are you going to do? In other words, if you're Messiah, you, you going to make manna in the wilderness? And then when it comes uh, to him climbing up onto the, the pinnacle of the temple, in the, the Peshitta Rabati, that's, again, a rabbinic writing, uh, it says, when the King Messiah reveals himself to proclaim salvation, he will come and stand upon the roof of the temple. 
Now Jesus was a Palestinian Jew, and he knew that that's what they were expecting. And so I think his temptation uh, was to prove himself in terms which the Jews, the society around him, would have understood, rather than in God's terms, and to prove it here and now. Now I said that the temptations recurred, that's what Luke 4 says, that uh, they returned to him, the devil returned, departed only for a season, implying to return. And that certainly was there at the crucifixion. Come down from the cross, and we will believe you. Prove it in our terms. Now that is also our temptation, to make ourselves acceptable in the eyes of this world, to be religious as they understand religion when really we should not be worried about living up to their expectations and their projected images of us. What they think of us is not the point. We are to be who God wishes us to be. Whether in some aspects that is attractive to the world, for example being kind and generous, or whether in some aspects it is uh, irritating to them, for example telling them to repent and be baptised. Um, or else they, they will not have the hope of the kingdom. Um, whatever, we are to be God's people, and uh, again, uh, it says in uh, Romans 12 and J.B. Phillips, don't let the world push you into its mould, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Don't be pushed into their mould. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Now, all these temptations that we've just read of in Matthew 4, they involve an element of doing visible miracles in order to prove that he was indeed God's son. And several times the Lord has that same temptation, give us a miracle. And I think that's why he operated in his ministry with what I would call an economy of miracle. Uh, he did do miracles, but not, not so many. Um, as he could have done, and not as many as, of course, people wanted. Do us a miracle and prove, prove yourself. And I think the whole essence of these temptations is that it's not by miracles that we prove ourselves or prove anything to ourselves. Because faith is belief in what you can't see. Now, in our Ecclesia here in Riga, we have a lot of people who come to us who've been involved with the Pentecostal movement. And they may have been involved in it for a month, a year, or ten years. But they all become very disappointed because they want to see a miracle. They want to see that they're, they're, they're hyped up, that it's going to happen, it's going to happen, see this, see that. It's going to happen for you. You're going to be next. You're going to get rich. You're going to get cured of your diseases. Your family's going to be blessed. And it somehow doesn't quite happen. And that really is the essence, I think, of these temptations. Show me something physical. Show me a miracle, and I shall believe that I really am the child of God. And the whole essence of these temptations was, you don't need to pull rabbits out of your sleeve, or rabbits out of a hat, to, to prove anything. Not to yourself, and certainly not to others. So then... Jesus was tempted a number of times in, in this way. I mean, those Greek words command that these stones should be made bread. Um, they 
the, the idea of command that this shall happen. You've got it again in Matthew 20 verse 21 where a woman likewise asked Jesus to command, to utter a word of power that would give her sons the best places in his kingdom. You've got it again in Luke 9.54 where they tempt Jesus to issue a command for fire to come down from heaven and consume the, the, uh, the Samaritans. But fire only comes down from heaven and consumes God's enemies in the last days. Revelation 20 verse 9. So again, the essence was to try to prove that he was son of God by forcing the kingdom to come in his lifetime and to avoid the cross. Now that was of course a big element of these temptations, to avoid the cross, to prove himself son of God by doing uh, quick fire miracles right there at the beginning of his ministry. And here Romans 1 verse 4 becomes incredibly relevant. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. He was declared the Son of God by a spiritual life, by a holy mind, by a spiritual mind. He was declared to be Son of God according to the spirit of holiness. That's what I take that to mean. According to a mind that was holy, that was spiritual. Uh, and by the resurrection, which of course necessitated his death. So it was that, it was the, his spiritual mindedness internally, his, his death and his resurrection, that declared him to be the Son of God. So all this stuff about declaring himself at the beginning of his ministry to be Son of God by pulling off uh, snappy miracles and jumping off temples and stuff, this was all a way of avoiding the cross. Um, <clears throat> you know, produce a miraculous sign to validate yourself. This again was, you know, jump off the temple and God will look after you. When did this temptation recur? Come down from the cross, jump off the cross, and people will believe you. All the time he was being tempted to, to bypass the cross. And of course, Peter. Uh, tempted Jesus in the same way in, in Matthew 16 that you know start the kingdom here and now that's what Peter was saying don't go and die at Jerusalem start it here and now and I wondered if the way that Jesus calls Peter Satan is to um, reflect the way that Peter was in fact acting like the Satan that he experienced in the wilderness now this temptation to short circuit the cross now that is our temptation, is it not? Is not the whole essence of living in Christ to, as he says, to pick up his cross every day, not some days, not once a week, but every day, and to follow him? And the whole idea of a criminal on his last walk to the place of crucifixion would have been awful. It would have been shocking and frightening to the, the first century hearers. There was something uh, that revolted in them about the whole language of Stauros, of the cross. Uh, it was almost a, a sort of a form of expletive. Go to the cross, apparently. Um, I think it's Juvenal or Cicero um, says that to, to tell someone to go to the cross was, um, <laughs> you know what I'm going to say, it was a bit like, you know, telling someone to go forth and multiply uh, in, uh, as people might do today. And yet Jesus says, you know, go to the cross, pick up the cross and follow me. Go there, walk there, carry it there. 
And uh, I, I think that um, we also have something in us that rebels against the call of the cross. Maybe it's just me, I don't know, but uh, I read from the Bible Companion. And that means that eight times a year, at least, uh, I have down before me to read the, one of the records of the crucifixion. And I, I almost don't want to do it. Of course, I'm familiar with the text, like, like you are, but somehow I don't want to do it. And I wonder why there is that uh, dislike. That, you know, we might say, oh yeah, it's so awful, I don't like reading about it. But I wonder if psychologically our resistance to it is deeper. That is that we know that if he did this, he died for us, basically, so that we should die with him. Uh, because the whole record then, the fact of his death, uh, is an imperative to you and me. And I, I think that's why whenever Jesus starts talking about his upcoming death, the disciples change the subject, and despite him using the clearest of clear language, they did not get it, because they didn't want to get it. So we don't like the simple fact that we are in this life, in one sense, to suffer, to share in the cross. And of course we die daily, as Paul says, and we also resurrect daily. And the life that was manifest in him in the resurrection becomes manifest in our mortal flesh and so it's not that it's all suffering uh, but the whole idea of the crucifixion life is of radical self-sacrifice putting up with a terribly unbearable it seems situation the emotional situation family situation uh, caring for someone you don't have to care for, but uh, you choose to. That costs you everything. Radical cross-carrying Christianity. I mean, this affects our whole view of money. It affects our whole view of materialism, where we will live, how we will live, our choice of career. The, 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 the thing is just absolutely demanding because basically we are called to die. We are called to die. We are called to give our lives and yet everything in society is aimed at cushioning us against, uh, against pain. Medicine. Insurance. You've got a problem? Ah oh, yeah, have insurance and you'll be okay. Something wrong with your health? Ah oh, yeah, medical science will probably sort you out to start with, until, you know. And the whole point is that um, we are called to give radically of ourselves forgiveness. We can just say, no, I, I can't forgive that. Okay, I won't think about it anymore. I will try and banish that uh, whole thing from my mind, get it out of my head, not think about it. Yeah, that's not what you're asked to do. We're asked to forgive and that, that's awfully difficult and so painful. And because you can't stop yourself uh, remembering the, the pain of what has been done to you, I'm grateful to uh, Steve Gretton for pointing this out to me, um, you, 
have to keep on forgiving, on and on and on. As the memories come back, you have to forgive again. It's not a, a one-off thing. Uh, it keeps coming back in many, many cases. And so we could go on with the, the demands of cross-carrying. And yet, as I say, all that is within us says, I don't want that. I want the good life here and now. And the essence of the wilderness temptations is no. It, it's not a, you know, a discussion about a situation or a consideration of the situation. It is no, N-O, and nyet znaczyt nyet. No means no. I say no to present glory. I say no to present material prosperity. I say no to appearing uh, good and acceptable in the eyes of, uh, of society, in the eyes of even the ecclesia of, uh, of the Lord's Day. I say no to trying to prove to myself that I am the Son of God. And I say yes to belief in God's grace that he will give me his kingdom, that the kingdom is mine. And I don't need to prove that to you or to anyone else. I am God's son, a child of God, God's daughter. And if you don't get it, and if you don't believe that, and you say, oh, no, 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 you can't come here, or no, you're not in our club, or you're not in our church, or you can't break bread, or whatever it might be, um, so what? We don't have to be phased by that. We can say no, as Jesus said, no, to trying to prove himself in the eyes of people. You don't need to prove yourself. And I think as one gets older, I think one realises that. You don't need to prove yourself. Um, not to yourself, nor to anyone else. I don't know if you see what, I, what I'm saying, but if you are confident in God's love and that he accepts you, you don't need to prove yourself, not to yourself, nor to, certainly not to anyone else. Because the fact that you really are God's child... And that therefore he loves you with all his heart. You don't have to worry in that sense about jumping off temples or creating manna in the wilderness just because that's what, that's what they think you should do. And that's how they think you should appear if you are Messiah. You don't have to worry about that. Um, because we are secure in his love. And the kingdom is ours right now, although we have not yet physically possessed it, it shall be ours because God has given it to us right now. Thank you.